This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast talking about all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I am here today with Conway Irwin and Peter Gardet to talk about uh, COP26, the uh, uh, international, in a sense, climate fest coming up uh, this November. But, but before that, Conway, Peter, how, how are you all? Okay, thanks. How are you? I'm well. Uh, I'm, I'm talking to you all from Tampa to today. So, so we're, we're sitting here the second week in July at what is what seems to be a slow period. And, and judging by the airports I was in yesterday, everybody's traveling. I mean, it, it was, but and people have forgotten how to travel. I, I got through security last night. <laughs> and there was an old man in cargo shorts, uh, which should have given me concern to be to begin with. <laughs> But he had filled up all six of his pockets to go through security and, and then forgot that one is supposed to empty one's pockets. Uh, so, so it took him 10 minutes to, to empty his pockets and he still went through the buzzer with his phone. Uh, so, so it was it was quite an experience being back Impressive. in the airport. I'm sympathetic. Uh, I'm in the office today and the uh, one of our other tenants in the building has reopened at 100% today. Oh, wow. So the lobby was absolutely jam packed with people whose uh, entry cards to the building no longer worked, <laughs> who had forgotten how, you know, to get into an office or how to dress for an office. It's a it's a rough, you know, moment to retransition uh, back to school. It is. It's a uh, it's 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 a weird kind of reawakening uh, for everybody, uh, at least for me, and for that nice man in cargo pants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, so so what what we wanted to to talk about t- today, and, and this is part of the, this uh, the, this I suppose campaign that we've been on here for the past uh, c- couple weeks that that we're calling the the, the road to COP twenty six. Um, and, and COP26 being the, I'm going to try to define all of it because there's a, there's a bunch of what's conference of the parties, COP26, um, taking place in Glasgow this November, where it's in a sense increasingly relevant because the U.S. is back at the table and participating again in conversations um, after, I suppose, withdrawing its interest for, for a little while. So I, I guess given all the other international kind of happenings that this summer, that this fall, um, we, we just finished what two or three days ago the the Euro Cup with with soccer. Conway, maybe you could help to, to frame you know the, the the relevance and the importance of COP26 uh, for us. You know we're, we're sitting here in July, but but obviously this is impactful uh, that that we're talking about things coming up in November. Well, absolutely. Uh, And normally at this time, uh, by this time, we would have a lot more insight into what the event was going to look like, um, who was going to be uh, hosting events, what topics were going to be discussed. Um, But uh, 
COP26 was supposed to be held last year, 2020, and it had to be delayed because of COVID and because of continued outbreaks and the sort of um, concerns about, about the Delta variant and how fast reopening should happen. There's still not a lot of visibility on what the physical structure of the meeting is going to look like, which is unusual for this, for this late a date. There is talk of it being a sort of a hybrid event where you have some people in person and really the parties will take priority. That means the signatories and other events might be held elsewhere in Glasgow. There's even been some discussion about uh, possibly holding events in London just for capacity reasons, because to, to put it into context, you have you know, somewhere in the realm of 30,000 people at previous COPs and covering everything from, you know, pollinators to water quality to emissions, emissions and, and climate change being sort of the big overarching themes. But there's no pocket of the natural world that is not impacted by this, nor as we're coming to discover more, is there any pocket of the financial world that's not going to be impacted mm -hmm. by this? Wait, so, so thinking, you know, relative to say COP25 um, and, and you know, even COP 24, 23, you know, what, what's the trend that we're coming from uh, with, with COP 25 and, and how how might we think about COP 26 relative to the, the previous, previous 25? Yeah, previous I would say some of the biggest, uh, I, I would say the biggest shift that has been very widely noticed and acknowledged is just the way people in general, and that's not just individuals, that's not just sort of the public, but also institutions, governments, uh, corporations, the degree to which they're taking climate change seriously as material, material to their lives, material to their assets, material to their interests. It's just taken on more prominence at all levels. And, and urgency as well, right? I'm, and I'm gonna yes. read a quote from, from, from the paper you released to clients earlier this week, but, but you, you write, Put simply, it is no longer a policy issue that governments have 20 or so years to solve. It is visible and present and is increasingly reflected in shareholder activism, insurance premiums, consumer preferences, lending restrictions, and infrastructure permitting. It has implications for financial flows, asset valuation, product demand, and untapped opportunities for return on investments. So this is this seemed to be newly urgent, where in a sense that the financial sector is as interested as policymakers which is a really big shift. And I don't think anybody is going to be able to say for a while what is responsible for the shift, but uh, COVID, uh, everything that has come along with COVID has changed perceptions dramatically. Another variable that we should be thinking about in changing perceptions is, uh, is odd weather events, extreme weather events. I mean, just what's happening in the Western US right now. Mm -hmm. the, obliteration of a town in Canada that was basically scorched off the earth. I don't think any of us quite saw that impact being that severe that soon. And once you sort of start seeing these things uh, in real time, it that sense of urgency really builds. It really grows. And uh, consumer preferences make such a difference when you're talking about what corporations are willing to commit to, what financial firms are willing to commit to, and even the pressure on governments to take action. Well, so, it, and, and Peter, I'd like to, to, to bring you in on this uh, as well. You know, the, 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 the paper highlights um, three big ideas that we want to be paying attention to leading up to the event, uh, at the event, and then really on the back of the event. And those are climate risk disclosure, 
a market-based carbon price and, and blended finance. Uh, and I'd like your thoughts particularly to start on the second one with the carbon price, because I know you've done a lot of work on that uh, in a sense, comparing you know, the, the oil price as a potential model for, for the carbon price. What, what can we expect at COP26 uh, to, to be, you know, what's the discussion around the market or carbon pricing then? Yeah, thanks. So one of the things that, one of the themes that Conway touches on in her paper that I think is crucial are the limitations around what a UN-led process can achieve. And we focused on these three areas in part because we see them as areas where uh, UN-type leadership and particularly where a COP-type event can actually make a difference. There are actionable things that can be done in those three areas and announcements that we would expect from a functional conference of parties that would directly impact companies, markets, governments. So when it comes to a carbon price, it can be a very complex subject because you're obviously talking about pricing a kind of unactivity. You know, you're trying to reduce the emissions here. So how do you price something that in a way that deters people from using it and encourages them to undertake the energy transition? Uh, it's difficult to design a traded market mm -hmm. that does that. We're also talking about carbon prices really. So it's important to remember that the UN and the organization that it's creating for carbon regulation fundamentally consists of nation states. So it's nationally determined contributions. And each country has uh, quite a bit of say in how they meet that nationally determined contribution, whether they choose to take a top-down tax-led regulatory approach or whether they choose something that is more, well, let's call it market oriented, where they set a cap and then trade the remaining emissions. Uh, so far, both approaches have been tried. There's a general agreement that a component of traded offsets, so trading carbon offsets, trading carbon reductions across borders is an important element of making any energy transition economically efficient, right? So. The question then is, how do you trade across borders in a way that doesn't double count, that allows for the broader accounting of net emissions reductions to occur? And that can be done through something called Article 6 in the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, the Paris Agreement was is the outcome of probably the most effective Conference of the Parties COP event we've seen so far to come to some kind of even very general agreement on Article 6, which essentially dictates double counting and trading of offsets across borders, would be a really stellar outcome here. And it's something that really only the UN can effectively do. It's the only place where we're gonna see all of these different kinds of parties in one place. And I can assume there's obvious complexities uh, in, you know, creating carbon price. I mean, that the, there, there would seem to be certain areas where countries are quick to align the implementation of it. That there are probably hurdles that I don't understand, um, and then the implementation of it would just seem overly complex. I mean, what, what are the things to, to really be thinking about? Uh, I, I guess one on the alignment. What, what are the things that, that we can kind of check the box and say good, um, and then the the hurdles and from a kind of 
timing or implementation. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't foresee agreement on Monday and a carbon price on Tuesday. I mean, it's, this seems like a very long term discussion. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, markets, when they uh, become liquid, tend to price set very quickly. I don't necessarily. There's been a lot of experience in trading emissions uh, within financial markets and across different kind of emissions and across different sectors. Uh, we have an astounding amount of visibility into emissions that we didn't have 10, 15 years ago. I don't necessarily see the logistical complexities as problematic as much as the mere as the sheer cost. You know, mm -hmm. to, it's just going to be expensive to actually transition to a net zero environment by 2050. I mean, that's just in terms of energy infrastructure, that's not that far away. And it's those other tools around disclosure and regulation, as well as what the development banks can do to leverage private finance, uh, you know, in the places where emissions are still growing super rapidly. Those two parts will also be these solutions here and they can be aided by, you know, they can be funded better if there is a carbon price that lets companies, banks, institutions essentially look out into the future at a price curve and say, well, if I build a coal plant today, it's going to cost me, you know, $100 a ton in emissions mm -hmm. in 20 years. That's touched clearly unaffordable. So at that point, they can begin to reconsider and replan, and the whole underlying system can change. Uh, Conway and I talked about uh, some of the new infrastructure that needs to come about on the government side, probably won't be a part of COP26. Conway, I don't know if you want to go into that a little bit. When we talk about the information that's necessary to uh, measure and price carbon, measuring carbon is actually not... Uh, it's, it's not a done deal. There's a lot of infrastructure that has yet to be built to enable companies, governments at all levels to effectively measure their carbon emissions. And there isn't an exact way to do it. It's not like you have a barrel of carbon like you do a barrel of oil. Mm -hmm. So moving ahead and what will be required is some sort of standardized disclosure standards don't have to be exactly aligned across borders but they have to be aligned enough such that the emissions measurements and the emissions accounting is comparable because you don't want to take you know x emissions and assume that your x emissions are equal to another country's x emissions without that very definite comparability without those standards and without that you really can't even know if you're getting to net zero or how you're going to get there you have to know how much you're emitting you have to know what your targets are for five years out 10 years out 15 years out to get to net zero you just have to know how much you have and how much you need to reduce and the targets i mean do you see the targets should we think about it in terms of relative improvement as opposed to absolute improvement? Because it would seem that if my carbon emissions are extremely high today, that there's only so much I can do to get to X. But if I can improve by 10% and everyone else can improve by 10%, then we can have, you know, a, a sense of a higher chance of getting in, moving in the direction that we want to move in. Ambition and pragmatism are definitely... Um watchwords for this COP26. I think that when you talk about a concept like net zero, uh, that is an absolute. Mm 
-hmm. you have to offset or reduce, you know, as much as uh, to get to zero. You have an ab an absolute goal that you're going for. But there is a question when you talk about how to get to net zero, does that mean that you have to eliminate all emissions now? Or does it mean that you have to be moving in the right direction? Uh, does it mean that you stop funding all fossil fuel, fossil fuel projects? Or does it mean that you commit to natural gas at, uh, with an eye to polluting or emitting less than coal and potentially, eventually, uh, developing better and more capacity to capture carbon emissions from the combustion of natural gas. So these are big questions. How ambitious any given country or company should be is going to be up for debate and is ne not going to be settled at COP26. Uh, there are some countries that have you know, put forward extremely ambitious targets that have put forward enhanced targets in advance of this COP26. And there are other countries, and uh, I think, you know, China is among the most prominent, whose goals have been criticized for not being nearly ambitious enough. Ambitious enough. And that is not something that's easily worked out. You can't negotiate your way out of that. Well, and, and you mentioned China. So, so, so when we're looking at emissions today it seems like that the i think the one one of the um charts that, that you guys prepared is the eu china and the us account collectively for what 60 percent uh, of global emissions so, so those would seem to be and i know the eu is not a single country but those would seem to kind of be the three big parties uh driving this conversation um that there seems to be relative alignment between the eu and and the us is is there more alignment than we realize across uh, the, a wider group of stakeholders? It's closer to uh, to seventy percent, actually. Okay. Uh, but yes, it is significant, a significant portion of the world's emissions. The U.S. and the EU are more in alignment now than they were a year ago. I think that's uh, there are <laughs> some pretty clear reasons for that. Yeah. Uh, but if the last five years have shown us anything, it's that. Uh, political alignment between the U.S. and EU can fluctuate. And there is right now no guaranteed way to ensure that U.S. policy, where climate change is concerned, uh, remains aligned with that of the EU. And that's where the importance of financial tools, uh, in some cases punitive, which is really where this is heading, uh, are important to drive activity within countries or I, I, the EU is a block, but you know I'm talking specifically about the US and China where there is not the domestic political will to commit to the same level of ambition as is present in the EU, for example. Yeah, if I could jump in, I think something that builds on that, it what's interesting to me about this COP26 building off of Conway's work uh, kind of looking into the road up to it is the real difference here for me is that how data driven it is. We really have come to a point where we're past a lot of the politics of climate change and we're into the data politics of climate change. So there's been this just incredible consensus that what gets measured gets managed. So if that's the consensus, 
what are we going to measure? And that I think is often what it comes down to. You see a lot of work being done in academic economic contexts where uh, academic economists at a number of the world's leading universities are trying to create new ways of processing economic data that privileges sustainability, that kind of moves away from GDP kind of as a raw reading of a, of a country's economic health. And that sounds very esoteric, but it has real implications for the disclosure regime and for the development bank piece of what we're talking about. Uh, if the goal of a economic you know, uh, manager at the national government level is just to grow GDP, they're going to make very different decisions than they are if they want to promote you know, technology use or if they want to promote job creation. You know, those are mm -hmm. different potential outcomes. And that in turn comes to the development banks and this whole question of kind of global economic justice. And again, that's one of those things that can sound esoteric, but in a place like COP26 in Glasgow, you're going to have representatives of a lot of countries who are traditionally left out of these discussions. We're going to have a prominent stage in which they can talk about the challenges that their countries face in making this transition and how much they feel that consumers in some countries should pay a premium in order to to cover those costs. So uh, even this is an area where kind of theory and politics and so on meet. But what's interesting to me is that they're meeting on this stage of that's really about data and, and what how data influences discussions. Well, and so, so the other two uh, pieces of, of, of things that, that you guys flagged specifically to watch in addition to, to the carbon price, uh, one was carbon or I'm sorry, climate risk disclosure, uh, which ties directly in, into that data piece. Um, you know, I, I think Conway touched on this a little bit, but Peter, when we're thinking about climate risk disclosure, you know, what type of infrastructure does one need to start thinking about to, to even begin to have climate risks disclosed, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about, it depends on who you're talking about at the national level, you know, the regional or governmental level, as opposed to companies. We tend to focus on companies here mm -hmm. uh, in our practice, and we try to bring all of our research to that level. And, you know, corporate risk disclosure exists already. There are good existing frameworks for it. The devil is in the details there. It's around what you're measuring and when you report it, how you report it. It's interesting that we've come to a time when we're really arguing about bureaucratic process in a lot of ways, like which form do we put the disclosure on and what kind of liability does that leave us open to? I think it's frankly encouraging, you know, that we're getting to that stage because this is where real change can happen. But it also means that investors, you know, people lending to these corporations, people insuring these assets need to be paying super close attention because what national financial regulators land on as kind of financial risk and how what's material within it when it comes to climate will have a meaningful impact on their business. And so they want to see climate change reflected in financial statements, but they don't want to see climate risk kind of become such a large subject matter that it, it prevents them from doing effective planning. And Conway, should, should we be thinking about 
climate risk disclosure data uh, in more of an absolute sense than, than say carbon price. I mean, the, the, just in my ignorance, I, I can see localized carbon price based on some of the kind of differences in, in local you know, emissions. But climate risk would seem to be absolute, where if I'm going to flood in this place, I'm going to flood in that place or, or whatever it happens to, to, to be. Is there more of a, uh, in a sense, scalable approach to climate risk disclosure? I mean, I think absolutes are actually helpful from a reporting standpoint in the sense that you don't want to be forced, uh, you don't want to be required to report on something vague, you know, hypotheticals, descriptive. These are difficult ways to report. You don't know if you're covering if you're covering everything. You don't know how effectively you're covering everything. So what you really need are uh, quantifiable mm -hmm. reporting requirements. I think emissions are a great example of that, specifically scope one and scope two. And uh, beyond that, you know, if you if you read through a standard financial report, you will see that there is some descriptive risk disclosure, uh, political instability, for example, you know, wars nearby, whatever the case may be. But to the degree that climate risk disclosure can be put into buckets and to the degree to which those buckets can be absolutely quantifiable, that not only simplifies the reporting process for companies, but it also does a better job of enabling comparability when you're talking about which companies emit more, which companies emit less, or at the national level. The statement's true. Intuitively, what, that there, there would seem to be a consistency to climate risk uh, measurement. Also intuitively, those who are at most risk are you know, in a sense, disincentivized to, to be as, you know, to, to be as transparent as they should be. I mean, if, if we look at just the, the the major cities of the world, you know, a lot of them are in swamps. How does, how do we expect that to get balanced in this conversation? Or is that one of the details that is going to take longer to, to, to kind of get through? I would expect that to be a big sticking point in discussions, not only at COP26, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of what's being discussed now in terms of what countries or companies or other entities should do is very specific in that uh, requirements should be in line with local conditions. So it is to be expected that reporting requirements will vary along those lines and by industry. Different industries have different climate risks, uh, different climate impacts to bear in mind. That said, I think when it comes to flood risk, as you mentioned, uh, you know that I'm from New Orleans. Yes. There's a lot of flood risk, right? But it is so difficult to anticipate or quantify what we once saw as these, you know, once every hundred year storms or events. And I think that that is not going to be easily decided or easily managed. These weather events, these extreme weather events have become mm -hmm. so surprising, things that no one could have foreseen, or maybe a few people could have foreseen, but sort of sounded a bit hysterical in, in warning about them. Uh, so I do think that's going to be 
an area where it's really going to take time to make progress on deciding just how much risk disclosure should be present and how it should be framed. Just to build on that, this is one of the arguments for balancing a market-led climate response with one that closely involves you know, government directives and government funding because the time scales are so different. An investment cycle is a few years, maybe a decade, beyond which it's you know almost impossible to think about uh, what the world would look like beyond then. The risks are too diverse and large. But if you're going to build a flood protection system in New Orleans, you know that's a, a century investment that requires a very different funding model and a very different group of actors making a very different group of decisions. No single carbon price is going to give you both of those signals, but you need a system that allows for both of those signals to exist and to exist dynamically with each other. That's something that, as you mentioned earlier, does exist in the oil industry. We have a price that gives us the months ahead, but we can also look at years of price action in the past and model into the future. And so that modeling is really where so much of this debate comes down to. And again, to that data question, what do you put in the model that gives you a carbon price in the future? And that future carbon price then dictates so much of the kind of response that you know governments take that then influences the decisions that companies take. And so insofar as COP26 allows for some kind of clarity around even just the discovery mechanism for carbon pricing would be to my mind, a huge step given how large the stakes are and how little COP, you know, UN-led change functions can really do in this space. I guess one of the, the other things here, and this is really on y'all's um, kind, of, kind of last point there on blended finance, that this is a huge opportunity for, for investment globally. And it's, you know, it from, from what I can tell, you know, it's bigger than government, it's bigger than private enterprise, it's in a sense bigger than all of us, right? Um, how, how, how should we look at, uh, I think you guys described it as blended finance uh, in the paper. Has something changed within COP26, Conway, compared to, to, to previous uh, events that has uh, allowed the finance conversation to, to be more a public-private partnership as opposed to, to heavily public? One thing that has emerged somewhat recently is estimates of the cost of what it's going to take to build out the necessary infrastructure to transition. And having a concrete number to look at to say there is absolutely no way that the public sector can finance this level of investment. It's just not possible. So that has brought the question of urgency more to the mm -hmm. forefront. And there is an expectation now that was perhaps building for a while, but has not been this present in the past, that private sector finance has a responsibility uh, and also has opportunities in looking at ways to help fund this transition. Public sector can't do it alone. Private sector might make some money doing it. And this is the most feasible way forward if we're going to resolve this issue. And there's no real resolution to it, but if we are going to try to mitigate um, the degree of warming and the worst impacts of climate change. 
And I think one other thing that we didn't sort of mention talking about extreme weather events or other climate risks is insurance premiums, mm -hmm. which should reflect not only what are understood to be the risks uh, around various projects, pieces of infrastructure, but also the degree to which project developers have planned for that risk and have uh, built in systems meant to uh, mitigate risk. And Peter, when we're, I mean, as we're talking about, you know, the, the importance of private finance, how can one view this as an investment rather than a cost? And is that totally contingent on carbon pricing or there's some other, you know, you know, we'll keep picking on the Gulf Coast with seawalls. I'm not going to make a lot of money building a seawall. It's more of an expense to me than, say, something else. What are the things where uh, the financial community can get involved and say, all right, uh, this makes sense for me? Yeah, so a couple of answers to that that actually kind of go back to some of the time issues that we were talking about earlier. So uh, insurance companies, pension funds, these are the biggest sources of available money in the world. And they really do have to plan for that 30-year time horizon. So in a way, asset managers holding investment responsibility over a long period of time who are able to take uh, somewhat de-risked, if you like, positions supported by government backing in infrastructure projects. That's actually a pretty good match, particularly if interest rates stay as low as they have. You know, you can't, you could go out and invest in those treasuries, but, you know, what are you going to make? If you can even get a few more percentage points on a guaranteed risk-free return, and you get to deploy against a real asset like a seawall, that's not actually a terrible uh, investment thesis for them. When it comes to people who are more interested in transactions, uh, I think one of the exciting things here is the huge amount of innovation we've already seen mm -hmm. in financial markets around climate pricing, offsets, green bonds, green lending. Uh, you know, these are rapidly growing spaces and they provide that kind of flywheel of data and, and money flow and activity that allows for an energy transition that is both, you know, it's lives in a somewhat dynamic relationship to climate. We have to reduce emissions and so we have to move to a cleaner energy system. But at the same time, a lot of that energy system change operates kind of on its own time scale, its own technology scale with impacts on climate. So it's about drawing between those two. And that is something that finance does really well. The marginal dollar, the marginal investment dollar gives signals to players in these different markets and at the government level that you know no uh, central centrally managed entity is ever going to be able to do. So I think there's a, such a place for finance here. It's but at the same time, a financial firm is not going to look at New Orleans and say that city needs uh, a seawall. I'm going to take care of that for you. That's not their function. It shouldn't be. Uh, governments exist for that reason and they should securitize that. And a financial firm should sell those securities to an asset manager with whom it matches their their risk and investment profile. I think that's ultimately anything COP26 can do to bring those parties literally together into a mm -hmm. conference to get them on some kind of similar uh, agreement and build the 
bureaucratic paperwork infrastructure to make this happen. That's that's where success lies. It's not going to lie in some great pronouncement about the end of oil or any of those things that just simply are not realistic or possible. All right. Well, so, so thinking maybe on final thoughts for for for, for both of you here. Let, let's let, let's you know pretend that the, the event has just closed. Um, you know, what are the the, the post event takeaways that that in a, in a sense uh, your your crystal balls are are expecting four or five months out here? Peter, I'll start with you, uh, and Conway, we'll we'll finish with you. Yeah, uh, I would in the very short term afterwards say that the most uh, the strongest indication of a really successful COP from a financial markets perspective would be rising trade volume for the existing futures contracts for carbon emissions. There are a number of them that have been launched on futures exchanges in the last couple of years. Vol trading volume remains very low compared to the total level of emissions. If COP26 is seen as having had a serious uh, effect in moving sort of moving the ball forward in in terms of dealing with climate change people are going to begin pricing out that risk seeking to get the experience in pricing that risk and hedging it and trading it and you should see volumes in those contracts begin to rise and that to me would be kind of the canary in the coal mine to mix climate <laughs> metaphors uh, uh, that says this was a good conference you know a failed conference to me is you know, such a wasted opportunity. I almost don't want to think about it. But in that case, to me, it looks kind of like the Copenhagen conference a few years ago where everyone just flies home and says, well, you know, that was a waste of time. So yeah. I think one of the things that we really need to be looking for as an outcome, because this is the conference of the parties, they are negotiating on these specific articles is what happens with Article 6. There's enough daylight yet between those who are in favor of Article 6 as written and those who object to certain aspects of it that I personally would be surprised by complete agreement. If it were to happen, it would really accelerate the development of a global trade in carbon offsets, and that could have a, a very big impact. Not You would not see impact immediately. It would take time for this trade to grow in volume and ultimately in impact. But the sooner that it can get started, the sooner it can you know, start to uh, really change how people view offsets, measuring emissions, and just global trade in, in carbon emissions writ large. If there is even partial agreement on uh, some of the finer points of Article 6, we've already seen some pilot programs pop up uh, between, uh, for example, Switzerland and Peru, which is mentioned in the paper of uh, Switzerland funding an emissions reduction an, an emissions reduction program in Peru and then being able to claim those reductions towards its own nationally determined contribution. If there appears to be some progress, even if it's only sort of verbal and agreed between states who are meeting at the conference, we may see more of this type of program. It's not necessarily going to be global, but the more bilateral, uh, I don't want to say trade, the more 
bilateral activity you have mm -hmm. in this regard, that is a sign of, of the development of this market, even without an overarching market uh, in which everyone can participate. So hopefully we will see some progress on that because that will build the momentum towards greater transparency, greater price discovery, and just more opportunity uh, in that market, even in those bilateral markets to start, maybe regional, who knows. All right, well, well those uh, sound like good predictions and the advantage or the disadvantage of the podcast is we will be in the public domain that second week in November so we can come back and find out whether whether you're right or wrong but th thank you both for, for, for joining and I'm sure that this is going to be a conversation that we come back to uh, and I'd like to go ahead and pencil y'all in for a post COP26 wrap up uh, in the middle of November which will be around my birthday by the way so we can have a, a real party all right. Well, thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.